Welcome back to the Jam Base Podcast, a proud partner of the Osiris Media Network. I'm Scott Bernstein, and I'm joined by my fellow Jam Base editor, Nate Todd. How's it going, Nate? Pretty good, Scotty. How about you? Doing well, doing well. And this episode features Nate's interview with legendary musician Peter Rowan. Peter recently released a fantastic album, Calling You From My Mountain. We'll hear Nate's chat with Rowan soon, but now a word from this episode's sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Grateful Fred. Show your love of great music on the DL with Grateful Fred. Grateful Fred brings officially licensed, high-quality chrome badges and more to fans of the Grateful Dead, Fish, and Widespread Panic. Check out a wide array of designs like the 13-point bull, the Steely, Dancing Bears, Song Titles, and numerous other classic Grateful Dead designs. Find the full Grateful Fred collection at www.grateful-fred.com. That's G-R-A-T-E-F-U-L-F-R-E-D.com. Visit gratefulfred.com today. Nate made his Jam Bass podcast debut earlier this year when he interviewed Chris Pandolfi of the infamous String Dusters. We'll be hearing much more from Nate in the months to come. Mr. Todd had the pleasure of speaking with Peter Rowan over the 4th of July weekend at the High Sierra Music Festival. Well, did your first High Sierra Music Festival experience live up to your expectations? You know, it really did. Um, it was, you know, I it's been on my radar as a festival to, that I've wanted to go to, you know, for a long time. You know, they just celebrated 30 years. So, you know, it's pretty much as, as you know, as old as, as when I was old enough to go see festivals. Um, you know, I noticed, you know, just the really great lineups and, and yeah, it just, it, it really brought it. It really brought it. It was a, it was a really great experience. Awesome. And, uh, it, it's four days and, and just tell me about the, 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 what you thought of the venue itself. It's such a unique place. It is, it is. Um, you know, we drove in from Reno, um, which was interesting, you know, so you're, you're, so you're kind of on the edge of the desert there. And um, then you sort of, you know, strike west and you kind of start to get in, getting into the Sierras and, and um, you know, the trees start to get bigger and bigger. And then, you know, the the Plumas uh, County Fairgrounds where the festival is held, um, you know, there's trees surrounding it, trees throughout. And, um, you know, honestly, um, a really kind of easy festival to get around. Everything's close. There's not, you know, lines for anything you can sort of, you know, get back and forth between the stages and, and catch the music that you want to catch. And, um, yeah, yeah, it was, it, it made for a really great experience and, um, you know, the people there were great and everybody was really friendly and, um, yeah, it was a great time. Excellent. And, you know, let's, let's start with, with the music. What were some of your highlights musically? Um, so, you know, obviously Peter Rowan, uh, which we'll talk about soon. Um, and he played with uh, Railroad Earth. They did an Olden in the Way set and and he collaborated on, with them on some other stuff during their second set. Um, it was actually my first time seeing Goose, which I've been wanting to see for a really long time. Goose brought it. Um, and uh, who introduced Goose? And uh, Jam Bass co-founder Andy Gadiel introduced Goose, and that was really a special moment. That was uh. really a special moment. It was it was really cool. Um, and you know those guys have just been making waves, and to kind of see the to see Jam Bass and, and Goose coming together in sort of the future of 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 stuff, you know, kind of happening there was special. Yeah. Um, 
You know, one thing that and, we had talked about in the past when we've been watching Goose together was Peter and and his rig and you know what he brings. And and Nate's for for our listeners is is plays keyboards himself. Uh, what did you think uh, of Peter's skills, like an actual person instead of on a live stream? It was great. It was great. It was you know um, I've. Like, you know, I am a keyboard player and I'm really interested in, you know, what what other keyboard players play. I love to see, you know, to to get up close um, and see sort of their not only what they're playing, but their techniques. Um, you know, Peter's a great keyboard player and, you know, it's it's been fun to sort of watch his rig grow yes. <laughs> in these past couple of years and to to be up close and to see him really um you know, utilize the whole thing live was, was, um, was a treat for sure. Okay. So we've got goose, we've got uh, rare road earth. What were some of the other ones for, you? um, you know, um, somebody that I've liked for a really long time. And I, I believe it might've been my first time seeing him live, um, was Chris Jacobs, um, was probably sort of for me personally, kind of a highlight. Um, I caught one of his late night sets, um, which was fantastic. Um, you know, had that late night vibe. Um, Lindsay Lou came out with him as she would collaborate with Peter as well. Um, and, um, you know, caught uh, his sort of afternoon set the next day. It's just fantastic stuff. I love his sound. Um, you know, he's just got this sort of, it's it's rock, it's roots, it's, you know, uh, blues. It's just a, a great, and he's got a great voice and he's a great guitar player. I love his, you know, he, it's great song cigar too. box slide you know i it, it was that kind of for me was a big one um twiddle had a great late night set um and um i can't remember exactly i think it was saturday night twiddle had a had a solid late night set you know and those late night vibes are always a little different. So it's fun to see those shows, you know? Yeah. And I was, um, I was going to say, did Chris yeah. do a good job of, was it pretty different seeing the afternoon set versus seeing the late night set? Uh, you know, so like the late nights. Yeah, it, it, it was, um, you know, the late night set just, it just, you know, I think there's a vibe about it. You know, there's an energy at the, at late night things sure. that, that are sort of, that are different. Um, and, you know, I think that the artists certainly cater to that. Um, def- definitely, you know, maybe a little, a little more hard rocking, little, uh, you know, a little more energy, um, you know, um, because, you know, again, with the late night thing, I think he's getting that back from the audience. Yeah. So, no um, you know, in that, the afternoon set, you know, was kind of cool because Chris kind of has sort of this sort of, you know, bluesy laid back vibe that translates really well to the afternoon too. Yeah. You know, um, he played I this song, the afternoon set, um, about his dog, um, his late <laughs> dog. Um, the song was called, uh, mama was a red bone, which, you know, it just kind of had that afternoon sort of kickback bluesy vibe, um, which, yeah. So it was it was interesting to kind of catch late night and then to see sort of maybe more of the daytime sets. And uh, any tributes of note that stood out to you from the weekend? Um, you know, Steely Dan, the the nth power Steely Dan tribute was fantastic. I'm a big Steely Dan fan, and I was really looking forward to that. Um, you know, and that that was probably that was probably my favorite. Um, you know, and uh, Nigel Hall was a uh, helped found the nth power, um, but doesn't play with them. Hasn't been a member for a long time. Doesn't play with them all that often. Did, did he do a good job? Did you? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think, you know, he handled some of the vocals. Um, you know, he had keys. They had kind of a double key attack, um, which was cool, um, which, you know, is probably needed with some sure. a lot of the Steely Dan stuff. You know, they had a horn section. Um, and um, yeah, no, I thought it was a really it was really cool. And it was really cool to see him play with them. Um, yeah. And it, it kind of, you know, those collaborations over the, you know, kind of just over the course of the weekend, um, you know, obviously are are highlights of any festival just to see the collaborations, I think, um, really, you know, makes it, you know, enhances that specialness of it. I think my favorite part of the two high series that I went to were the play shops. Um, and that's something that's so atypical. Um, did you have, uh, did you get to experience any of the play shops? Yeah, we actually caught a little bit of, um, ghost note. Okay. Um, in, in the play shop, um, I think one afternoon, um, and they were doing like a, I think it was called maybe like a seventies funk exploration or something like that was the sort of the theme. And, uh, Sounds yeah, right that up was there, really Allie. great. Yeah. They, and yeah, they, that was my first time seeing them and I've definitely been hearing a lot of good, great things about them. And I actually kind of caught a couple of their sets and, um, you know, they were both extremely funky, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but they, you know, they kind of did some like, sort of um, during the funk exploration, they did some sort of like James Brown, like medley sort of kind of flowing into, you know, songs going in and out of songs, which, which was cool to see. And those guys are all just such great players that it just, you know, it was, it, they're pros. So it, it kind of just flowed flawlessly. And here's one for you. Um, what was there a set that you heard about, either after the fact or during the weekend that it just the timing didn't work out that you were particularly disappointed that, that you missed and would, would hit if you could do it over again. Yep. I, I think it was certainly probably green sky. Okay. Um, which was during the nth power and I didn't really get a chance to, um, catch any of that, which I was bummed about. Um, because they, you know, brought out, um, I think Skerritt came out with them, yeah. which I was very bummed because I, that, that um, you know, that collaboration was interesting. And I luckily got a chance to catch uh, Skerritt with uh, the True Loves a few times. So I did get to catch some of his stuff. I'm, I'm a fan of Skerritt. Um, and um, so that but that was disappointing, um, you know, but, you know. Being the Steely Dan fan that I am, you know, I was, I was, yeah, at, that the, is I was a, at the that, end power. That is a tough choice right there, yeah. you know, because it's <laughs> it like was. it's the green sky versus a once every couple of years tribute. But then you got green sky making it a special high Sierra. So that yep. says a lot for the festival, certainly yeah. that you're presented with tough choices like that sometimes. For sure. Definitely. Um, yeah. Well, bouncing around is kind of part of it and sometimes it works out and, and you know sometimes it doesn't but yeah yeah that's definitely part of it and uh one more thing before we get to to peter um can you tell me about your bitchin kitchen experience yeah that was really cool um you know so camp jam base and i i you know i you could tell me this you know i think historically has sort of teamed up with bitchin kitchen um for a you while know, now, and yeah I, yeah, yeah, and I'm, uh, you know, it's it's escaping me exactly where they're from. Um, uh, but I um, think they might be all over. But I believe if yeah. the team got some folks from San Francisco originally started it a long time ago, and some some uh, a, a 
a couple that's no longer with us, unfortunately, um, okay. were among its founders, but it still lives on uh, through the present and go on telling us uh, about it. Yeah, you know, um, they had a lot, you know, like right when I got there, you know, um, they were, you know, sort of setting up the stage and I was like, oh, this is going to be cool. You know, there's going to be some cool stuff going down here. Um, and, you know, um, Ron Artis, uh played there um, and I actually got to catch one of his festival sets and, and you know, caught him at the Bitchin' Kitchen. Both great. Um, um, Ezra Lip did a thing. Um, he had Reed Mathis um come out um with him and um let's see god man i can't remember who else exactly was playing with him but that was that was very cool adam and McDougal? uh adam mcdougall that was it you're yep yep you're right um and um they did you know a a, a set and um then you know, uh really um and which was great um but I, one thing that i uh, talking about being impressed and stuff by stuff um, was the, the California honey drops. They, they, they yeah. did a set at the bitching kitchen and, and I, I got to, you know, I sort of, I caught their daytime set and I caught one of their late night sets and I caught their set at the bitching kitchen. And, um, in, in all those places, their sort of fan base and the vibe that they have is, is it's something special. I, it's, it's sort of infectious. Like, when California honey drops, you know, were, were playing, people just started, you know, like literally coming out of the trees almost, you know, uh, you know, and like, it felt like a house party, you know, and they were doing, you know, and it was cool. It was like the coolest house party I had been with a band, you know, that I'd been to in a while. And so it was, it was cool. Very, very sweet. Yeah. And, um, so that, well, also kitchen is one of the words in, Bitchin' Kitchen. And uh, so did you get to try some of their food? Yes, the food was delicious. Um, I think there was like, I almost want to say it was like a, like a crawfish. Yeah, that's, um, that like, crawfish is one of their uh, main. Yeah, yeah um, and with like noodles. I, I can't oh, think of the exact. Oh, crawfish Monica? Does that sound Maybe. familiar? That Maybe. is uh, that that I think that's yep. Spiral noodles. Uh, yep, Crawfish spiral Monica noodles. is yep. a jazz fest favorite, and yep. uh, and that, that was my favorite. That's there, incredible. I think. Yep, it was so good, and uh, the, you know they were so nice, and being camped right next to them, it was so nice to sort of you know whether there was music playing there or they were you know cooking up something something tasty. Um, it was. Uh, it was nice to be able to kind of come back to camp and chill and recharge and, and get ready to see more stuff, you know? So it was, it was cool. And so, as you mentioned, located right next to team, uh, team jam base and camp jam base. Um, did Peter, is that where the interview took place uh, at camp jam base? Yeah. Yeah. We actually, so we had an RV on site and um, you know, we uh, had sort of been talking with Peter's manager um, coordinating everything. And we just kind of decided, you know, um, you know, we will, we wanted to have a, a nice quiet space to, to hear Peter and what he had to say. So, um, you know, we, we, we did the, we did the interview in the RV and, um, you know, his tour manager kind of drove him over. And, um, I think he actually maybe 
nibbled a little bit at the bitchin kitchen before yeah, we did I was our gonna say before, you know, was yeah, there any some, collaborations between peter rowan and bitchin kitchen yeah he had some food i think they had yeah. some breakfast stuff um that morning um because we did it let's see friday morning yeah. um at because the olden in the way set was was third with railroad was thursday night um yeah so had a little food and you know sat down and and just had an incredible conversation with peter it was it was um you know Definitely, you know, it was an honor and a privilege to talk to Peter. He's he's such a legend. He has such a deep knowledge of of music and and culture and what's going on in the world. And and he has a lot to say about it. Always has, you know. And um, it's you know, as far as like music goes, you know, I mean, I I think you know, a lot of people like me were sort of introduced to Peter through Olden in the way. But, you know, obviously, you know, he got to start with, you know, Bill Monroe and um, and, um, you know, but but does all kinds of stuff. You know, he's got the free Mexican Air Force thing going on and he's got like a reggae project going on. And he just he's just he's just a musician's musician. And he and he um, just he has a lot to say. He's and a stellar songwriter. I've always admired his songs, um, whether it be. Olden in the way, the olden in the way tunes, or his new album "Calling You from My Mountain" is is amazing. Speaking of calling you from my mountain, let's get down to it and hear Nate's interview with Peter Rowan, which we'll lead into with a bit of the song that made Hank Williams dance off "Calling You from My Mountain," which is out now. She's the dance that made Hank Williams sing. She's the song that made him dance She's the dance that made Hank Williams sing She's the song that made him dance She's the dance that made Hank Williams sing She's the song that made him dance She's the dance Yeah. Good morning. <laughs> okay. Hi, Peter. I'm, I'm here with Peter Rowan uh, at High Sierra Music Festival. Um, so it's a pleasure to speak with you today, Peter. Well, I'm so happy to see you, man. Yeah. This beautiful festival all spread out over the uh, Plumas County Fairgrounds up in Quincy, California on a wonderful July 4th weekend. Beautiful. Yeah. And uh, July 4th is also your birthday. Happy birthday, sir. Thank you. Yeah. I'm <laughs> going to hit the big eight, eight zero. And, you know, it's uh, very, very interesting. And people have been so supportive. Happy birthday, Peter. Thank That's you. That's awesome. I appreciate that. Um, you know, let, it was a great set last night. Um, I, I just, I was curious, you know, um, what what's your sort of experience sharing those old in the way songs that, that mean so much to so many people? Well, it's a way of finding out how much it, how much they mean, you know. Right. Um, the promoters at times are almost too respectful, and they don't tell us that hey, this audience is waiting to hear that original show, and you know, so we'll throw in a few old. Uh, but they're my standards. I wrote them, so I I usually include them in a bluegrass show. Um, but I know that these folks love to hear things in context. So if you do a medley of of songs from that era of the olden in the way sets, 
uh, people are really, it really hits them. You know, they, they've heard it in context of a CD, right? So they, so it's all in a certain order. And I think uh, uh, Railroad Earth is sensitive to that. And they, they put, make the running order have, have some uh, impact in terms of uh, how people might have heard it on CD. Right, right. Um, how, did you, how did you sort of start collaborating with, with the Railroad guys? Oh, just over the years, we'd be at festivals, and they had a guy in the band, Andy, originally, who was the, one of the founders, and he was a multi-instrumentalist, and he was a prankster. And wherever I'd be playing, he and John Skelton would show up, and they'd crash my set. I'd suddenly turn over in a bluegrass set, and over on the side of the stage, there'd be a trombone and another mandolin. And, and they just, uh, I appreciated that kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, sense of humor and... Uh, and they're great musicians, and uh, unfortunately, Andy passed away. And but his instrument was on stage last night. His banjo was on stage. Wow! And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, over the years, we just found ourselves at festivals, and John Skelton and I are friends. And uh, um, we were at the Rhythm and Roots in in Rhode Island, and. Um, I just said, you know, hey, we'd done a few shows before. I said, do you guys be up to doing a little something? And they took a vote between all uh, one CD of mine called All on the Rising Day, which is uh, kind of epic quality, and the Reggabilly one, the reggae project. and they Because mm. they see things in terms of context, which is, you know, as a songwriter, I'm like, whatever the next song is, right? Right. And then they said, and then the old and the way they took a vote and they, they agreed that the old and the way would be good. So we did the Capitol theater before the, on the very edge of the COVID shutdown. Mm. And then we've kind of been back at it this year. Yeah. They're a lot of fun. They're a lot of fun. It was great to see that set, man. It was, that, oh, was, that was really cool. You. Very cool. And they are joined by a man who started his career as a bluegrass boy with the one and only Bill Monroe. And then went on to make an album with Jerry Garcia that brought a generation of us to bluegrass music. Here to do a tribute to that album, Olden in the Way, and a whole bunch more. Please give a warm High Sierra welcome to Railroad Earth and Peter Rowan. have a new album out and yeah. i want to talk about i want to talk a lot about that album um you know uh, it, it started as a um you were kind of paying an homage to uh, uh the hank williams sings luke the drifter yeah and then when you know the pandemic you weren't able to cut the record right away when the That's pandemic right. hit um yeah. 
And, you know, you went back to California and you, and then you kind of started building, um, calling you from my mountain. Um, could, could you kind of talk about that time and what sort of shifted your focus? Sure. Well, you know, before the pandemic, the, my, uh, latest rebel bluegrass record, Carter Stanley's eyes had given us two or three good detouring years, you know, but it, things kind of calmed down and I was doing a lot more work with uh, Los Tex Maniacs out of San Antonio, which is a Tex-Mex conjunto band. And we go out as the free Mexican air force and festivals are really liking that. Yeah. And so I, I, I knew I wanted to make this record and um, I had made plans to begin in September of the first COVID shutdown year. And, um, I had Billy Strings lined up and Molly Tuttle, and I had an idea of what I wanted to do, um, which was inspired by Hank Williams' sort of spiritual alter ego, Luke the Drifter. Mm. And the more I wrote the Luke the Drifter songs, the more Luke the Drifter was telling me to to try do do my my songs. Uh, and and as the COVID wore on, and there was just hardly any you know, contact with folks, and just a few Zoom things, and there were quite a few Zoom things. I I had this song from my mountain to your mountain that I had been doing. Oh, I think wrote it maybe back when I was with, just finishing up with Tony Rice, and I started traveling with a Tibetan singer named Yung Chen Lamo, who is had escaped from Tibet as a young lady with a small child on her back and made the thousand mile journey on foot to uh, India from Tibet, fleeing the, you know, communist invasion. And, uh, and now that makes for some strength (laughs) and she's a beautiful singer and a, and a wonderful uh, sort of spiritual, um, spiritual guide for people who music reaches out to people on a certain level, you know, and, on a vast level, and uh, she she sings these uh, melodies that are sort of born in her and mantras and prayers, and and she just has a new album out, and and she'll do an entire solo concert just standing up there. But now, I she went on the road with me and my bluegrass band, and suddenly it was like Young Chen Lamo solo artist playing some kind of crazy bluegrass festival in South Florida, and. Uh, and her response was to dance and to dance in, with members of the audience and stuff. And it was like she broke the, the barrier, you know. So I was really inspired by working with her. And so I wrote From My Mountain to Your Mountain. It was like she's from Tibet and I'm from the Appalachian tradition, you know, sort of reaching across this this gap. And then it became a metaphor for the COVID thing. From my mountain to your mountain, you're isolated on your mountain. I'm isolated on my mountain, and I and you know for Rebel Records to, you know, entertain a song like that, I knew it had to be something that included the essence of bluegrass in the recording, and not be just some like an anomaly, you know, some little strange sort of. Well, that's different, you know. Yeah. That's the worst thing in the world. That comment. <laughs> that's different, <laughs> you know. We don't want that. You know? So I hired these musicians. We went up to Wisconsin to a festival last fall, Boats and Bluegrass, up in Winona, Winona, Wisconsin, at the headwaters of the Mississippi River, which happens to be the birthplace of one of my dearest friends, who's passed uh, some years ago. 
And it was like touching base it, somehow. The, this group had never played together before, and I rehearsed them for three days. We played the festival, and then we went over to St. Paul, Minnesota, and recorded the album. Okay. And so it has a freshness to it that, you know, when you when you go in to make recordings, you know, it, the emphasis by a lot of, there is a strong emphasis to, like, really get it together, mm-hmm. you know. But having confidence in bluegrass players and their spontaneity, especially these players, gave me the the kind of like impetus, kind of confidence to go ahead and just lay the material out there and see what they did. And of course, Julian Pinelli, you know, genius fiddle player, Chris Henry, wonderful mandel player and singer, uh, my nephew, Max Wareham. And Eric Thorin, who's played all kinds of music from, you know, Latin to South Caribbean to bluegrass and lives in Colorado. So Eric joined. And uh, it's always been my view and my sort of working theory that spontaneity will carry the day. Mm-hmm. And and to have to, to have laid all this stuff down with very little um, fixing or overdubbing, you know. Uh, it all just happened in four days. And then I went back and mixed it in uh, February wow. of this year, just a few months ago. And they've, they've got it out now. So this is the, the debut. The first uh, single was the dance that made, the song that made Hank Williams dance. Right. We did that little video. It was really a lot of fun with uh, Sean Kemp uh, singing with me on that. And, uh, and then of course, Molly Tuttle, I always had her in mind and, and so the title cut from um, calling you from my mountain to your mountain. Molly just came in and added some emotional level to it that was just elevated the song. And then Lindsay Lou came in and she sang a third part. And Lindsay is unmistakably on in her singing, you know, and to find a way to join in with Molly and I was very, so that song would be in a success kind of, I think brought the level up on everything, you know, and, wow. and each song. And it wasn't done in a bluegrass studio in terms of the production. It was done in a, a studio that's oriented more towards jazz and, okay. and, and the whole process of working with the, the engineer and, and the make uh, the mastering lab up in uh, Minneapolis it's like Minneapolis to me is kind of holy ground, right? right. Prince is from there. Yeah. <laughs> Dylan's from up that area. Yeah. And I just felt particularly uh, inspired by that vibe, you know, the the, the Minneapolis magic, you know. It's, wow. it, I mean, it may not really exist, but I we found it on this record. <laughs> awesome. I think it does exist. I, yeah. I think it does. That is that is really cool, Peter. Um so I, I kind of wanted to talk about that song um, specifically um, that you have um, Molly and Lindsay Lou on um, and you guys and you were you were sort of you mentioned the, the parts that they did. But mm-hmm. there's this roundabout part that you guys do at the ending. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, and I was I mean, I was kind of blown away by that that particular. I, the, the that's, whole, that's Lindsay. Yeah. OK, she okay. found that. OK, because I, amazing. you know, as we went through the song, I said, well, this part here. We, we we that arrangement happened in the over you know adding the harmonies and uh, 
it's like I, I gave, uh, and you know, Molly, the lead on the out, the out choruses. And then I came and answered her where she'd been answering me in the song. Uh-huh. And Lindsay was there and she was like, just singing along, you know, and it was like, oh, can we just put that? Could you please record that? You know, right? She's so musical. She's so wow. so beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I I love that. And then you guys kind of come together in the three parts. Yeah, at the very end, the that's end. a yeah. Well, you wouldn't think there'd be room to find right. a spot, but Lindsay wove her magic in there, and 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 Molly never let up. Wow. I mean, there's none. There's no like sampling or anything like, you know, moving. Oh, that's a good line. Let's move that. Do that. Every, put that in there every time. It was like, it's all how she sang. You know, wow. And extremely wonderful quality in her voice. So yeah, it's a great song. A great song. I'm calling you. Another uh, great song on there is um, "A Winning Hand." Um, oh yeah, and I believe you have um, you have Billy on that one, correct? Yeah. Now that you know, it's I, I recorded that with Billy in Nashville, okay. and um, when I left Nashville, I'd been there during the '60s working with Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys, being the lead singer of the band, and um. I left there and Dave Grisman and I had gotten together and done our projects, Earth Opera, Mule Skinner and Olden in the Way. And that kind of capped in the 60s. That was sort of into the early 70s with Jerry Garcia and Olden in the Way, Vassar Clemens. But I had left Nashville, you know, and it was within, within five years we were doing Olden in the Way, which is really a short time. And we'd yeah. done so much other stuff, Earth Opera, Sea Train and all that. And so I'd been to Nashville a second time and uh, in the 80s. And I, I had left there in 1990 and moved to Texas, where my favorite songwriters were from. And I just felt like at, at that time, things were very quiet in Texas. Um, and there were a lot of the poets and singers still alive that inspired me. And that I took that song, A Winning Hand, with me. That was the song that I knew nobody in Nashville was was going to be interested in making a commercial recording of. So I, I walked away from a publishing deal and the whole thing, and that song has stayed with me all this time. And I've recorded it a couple of different ways, but never released it. And, and so when I presented it to this bluegrass band, you know, 
I basically just sang the song and they all, they're, they're, hearing and their scope of exposure to music includes the stuff that inspired me to write that song, like Irish music. You know, it's so players today, not only are they listening to much broader things, but um, a person like Sierra Hull is like, I would think leading the jazz edge of bluegrass yeah. amazingly. Yes. And so all these young players, you know, and a lot of the ones coming up have been to school. They go to like finishing school and learn music theory. Right. Well, that wasn't the back then. The bluegrass yeah. was just what you learned by doing it, you know. Sure. And so when I presented a song like A Winning Hand, they they knew the scope of where that, the roots of that song. I didn't have to explain anything and say, it's kind of an Irish sounding thing. It was like, well, that sounds Irish. I go, oh, thank you. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so it it is really a story of my um, my quest to find the winning hand, sort of an endless quest. You yeah. know, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you you mentioned it, you know it's like they said that it sounds Irish. You know, because when I listened to, I've never been to Ireland, um, right. but when I listened to it, it put me there, man. You know, and that I think you really captured that and your band and and everybody on that did. Fantastic. The Silver yeah. Coastline, White with Waves. Yeah, yeah. I was there. The Heather <laughs> Green on the Moor. I mean, Amazing. that's it. That's like a vision of Ireland. It you know? is. It is. That's really cool. Very cool. And then I have to say, you know, Robert er Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island kind of was in the background there. Oh, okay. The Smuggler's Saloon. Right? Yes, yes. I love that line. That's great. And and that I, I, I did have sort of a pirate, you know, yeah, yeah. Thing when, I, when I heard that line, you know, a little... <laughs> Candlelight <laughs> Saloon, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. That yeah. that is sort of one of my favorite sort of places to think about. Wow, that's that's really cool, man. Um, so, and did you did you sort of have Billy in mind for that song? Or well, yeah, I had met Billy and uh -huh. we picked a little bit at Winter Wonder Wintergrass mm. three or four years ago. He was playing a Thompson guitar, and a, a I was playing a Thompson guitar. Uh, from up in Sisters, Oregon. And we got together and he was really just meeting people, uh, what he called his heroes. He said, my dad played all your music for me and I learned all your songs. In fact, he does one of my songs that was never commercially recorded called uh, uh, Don't You Want to Ride? Uh -huh. And uh, it's on YouTube. And he does such an homage to my spirit of how I felt about the song, you know, what I put into it. He doesn't throw that away to do something else. He, he does what is great about bluegrass is you carry the lineage on by your rendition. You know, you always pay homage in bluegrass to singers of, or players from before, because there is a lineage, right. you know, kind of like it would have been if, if there was a, like a school of rock and roll that played Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry, and Bo Diddley, yeah, if that that would be my rock rock and roll band, <laughs> you know, that would be a lineage, right? right. Because the, all those people wove something at the time. But but music, especially in the jam scene, is, I mean, it's everything. Anything goes, right? Mm -hmm. You know, disco, this and that. You know, it, yeah. uh, it's just kind of like a, an exploration. Grateful Dead inspired, I would say. And yeah. Fish, of course. I can't ignore yep. Fish, although <laughs> I miss that generation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, you know, and I thought, um, I thought I, 
is Billy also on um, Freedom Trilogy? The, the, yeah. the last, I thought I heard him on that one. That yeah. is him. Okay. Yeah. And okay. I mean, it, some people have gone, well, you should turn him up. I said, well, if you really listen, he's completely audible. <laughs> yeah. I didn't turn Billy down anywhere. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like he, Billy is there. <laughs> yeah. And I, I pulled my guitars back. My, mm. my rhythm guitar, I pulled back so that Billy's interpretation was what I wanted. And, and I have to say, it's not like people, ex you know, what, what people expect Billy ring, Billy strings to kind of whip off a, a blistering solo. Yeah, he does about four bars at the end of the song. That's his uh, ending of the song. But what I was interested in Billy was not his brilliance as a, as a soloist per se, but his feel for the music. Mm. And he came into the studio and he had a 1943 Martin he had just bought. Oh, wow. And he was all excited. <laughs> and it's funny enough, the week before I had been playing Jerry Garcia's old Martin, out at uh, at uh, Terrapin Station at a little gig, and uh, out in Marin County, and those two guitars are both made from the same uh, pile of wood. Wow. The wood is the same. There's a two tone uh, rosewood back and sides that's on both of those guitars, and they sound very much alike. And so that was a a coincidence that uh, you know. Billy Strings would be would be playing a D twenty eight made in from nineteen forty three from the same uh, same woodpile at Martin Guitars as Jerry Garcia's guitar his D twenty eight and uh, I just let Billy interpret the song and he didn't go like oh I'll play a lead here and do this he just played the song and but that's what impresses me about Billy is is he's he. He knows how to show up and crowd please and all that, you know. But his tone, and this is a bluegrass record. And what's important in a bluegrass record is tone, timing, and the the things that make bluegrass special. And that's what he brought to the to his parts. Wow. And he plays lead for sure, yeah. you know. Yeah. And he homage pays homage to Tony Rice, you know, by by quoting a couple of his interpretations of Tony's accompaniment of me. So I think that's that, that those little bits of magic add up, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think his playing is just so tasteful on it. Yes. And, and, yeah. um, but, but you know, it's, you know, it's him, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Like you said, on total. Well, line. see, he didn't see it as like, well, I'll shred here. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it was like, he just, that, that guitar, it was new to him. And he was just reveling in its tone. And it, that's evident on the record. And at heart, that's what bluegrass people love. They love feeling yeah. through all that, all those notes and all that stuff. Feeling is, is, is what people are longing for. Wow. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I agree. Yes, I will keep my word See the light reflected on the sharp edge of my sword Freedom
uh, I, you know, I wonder, have you, have you been, you, um, how have these songs sort of fit into some of the live shows you've been doing and, and touring and, and how, how is the reception well, out there? It's, we find, let's see, our really first weekend was at the Merle Watson Festival in April and it was good. But that festival, the way it's set up is, you know, you don't get the close focus you need to really go have a satisfying early, you know, afternoon or morning set where you you, you stretch out and 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 explore the bluegrass feel for a while. Bluegrass needs warm up time, and it, it and I mean, unless you've been playing together for years and years, and you you never rehearse and you just go out there. It's again trusting the material. Um, so we played the the Merle Watson Festival, and it was good. It was successful. It, it, the the record sold out, and and uh, then the next thing we did was just a weekend ago the Telluride Festival, which was really hard because you got to go up to nine thousand feet altitude <laughs> yep. from zero, and uh, it was really hard, really rough, you know, physically. And uh, there's no air up there. And so, so Telluride is, as somebody told me last night from the, uh, from the, uh, from the band, you know, uh, Railroad Earth, they, they said, yeah, we got to Telluride after our first run to play out here years ago. This is them speaking. And, and we were terrified. And I said, yeah, I know it's terrifying up there. <laughs> but it's what makes it great, really, you know, is that you got, you don't have enough air to sing. And yet the 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 valley, the Telluride Valley, is so inspiring, and the people are an extremely great crowd, you know. But they're far away, <laughs> and and uh, so we played Telluride two weeks ago, and then we got out of there and came here and played the uh, Father's Day Festival, the California uh, Bluegrass Association Father's Day Bluegrass Festival. Uh, up in uh, Grass Valley, which is on the other side of the Sierras from here. And uh, that's where it was like, okay, the Telluride was like, we we played, we played a great set. People loved it. And it was like, it was like, wow, we're remembering. We know this material. We recorded this material. Okay, cool. <laughs> you know, and then, because we haven't been out on the road, you know, like gelling. And then we played a, a matinee set at the California Bluegrass Association Festival. And we just played traditional stuff. Didn't do any old in the way. I mean, I don't think. Might have done one of two of the new album songs, but we concentrated on on the, the stuff that old in the way used to play all the time when we, we got together. We're like drifting too far from the shore and mm. stuff that, that drew, draws out the qualities of the bluegrass background of the players. And that was very satisfying. And it was a very emotional set, and it was like, wow, we can really hear ourselves. It was a small stage. It was about 200 people. And, you know, in bluegrass, you got to be able to hear something of what you're doing. You're not plugged in. It's just air. You know? <laughs> and then that evening, we played the main stage. And, and yeah, yeah, it wasn't exactly a continuation of the afternoon feel because it's a main stage and it was good. But then the next day we did a closer at noon from the main stage, closing the first part of the set. And that was like, oh yeah, we're home now. We're wow. home. We know this stuff. You know what I mean? It, cool. It's interesting to, to, to look at the repertoire as something that we have to learn 
Yeah. And because we know it, we knew it from the beginning, but it's like, it, it's like almost orchestrated. It's like, oh yeah. And the intro, those intros like to My Mountain and Winning Hand and, and you know, and the little endings with the little Irish uh, motifs and stuff like that. Oh, that was all stu uh, spontaneous studio stuff. And thank goodness we haven't thrown it away, you know, kept it all in there. And so everybody's remembering together. It's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, as far as upcoming shows, um, you know, you, you got some stuff on the books coming yeah, up? Yeah, I've got St. Louis uh, after, after weekend, after this weekend, up next weekend, St. Louis. And then uh, then it's a sort of a jog into Free Mexican Air Force land up at uh, a festival called Gray Fox in Upper State, New York. Uh, Western Massachusetts, and then uh, meeting up with Don of the Buffalo at their culture camp um, with the Tex Maniacs, and uh, I guess they're going to cook a pasole stew, and and we're doing workshops, I'm doing songwriting workshops, and then we do a main stage that Thursday, and then we go to Ardmore, Pennsylvania, finally, uh, two weeks away, and finish in Virginia. And then that's that's over, and, and things are still coming back. You know, the, sure. things aren't full on for, for for in my world, full on bookings. We've got a date in Kentucky, another date in Ohio. You know, just occasional, just maybe one date on a weekend. But they're festivals, and they pay well, so we can go do them. Yeah, um, and then. Uh, and then we've got the IBMA thing in the fall, which is the International Bluegrass Music Association. And they're kind of celebrating my contributions to bluegrass. And um, so my band will be there. We'll get to play that show. Very cool. Very cool. We love to see you out there, Peter. That's awesome. Um, you know, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't. Yeah. I was intrigued by um, kind of returning to the album, um, the red, the white, and the blue. Yeah. And um, Light at the End of the World, they sort of seemed like companion yeah. songs a little bit. Um, could you talk about those songs? Yeah. Yeah. I This motif has been going through my mind. I remember, I remember, I remember you. And uh, I wrote it as a love song at first. And then I just, this, this, this line kept coming in my head. And the red, the white, and the blue. And I thought, well, you know, this during COVID, I went back and like, you know, what I'm really trying to say is, I remember something good that has turned into a worldwide competition with war, you know. And I've written these songs before, The Great American Eagle Tragedy, you know, Home of the Brave, you know, songs that commented on the Vietnam era that I was coming of age during. But bluegrass having an aura of nostalgia about it, you have some things you can draw upon that other musics might seem corny. And one of them is the Carter family approach, you know, which is very simple, you know. And I knew that Molly Tuttle played the five-string banjo <coughs> in the old style, real beautiful clawhammer style. Yeah. <coughs> and I thought, well... While you're here, let's try this song. So we we went in with um, Chris Henry and and uh, Sean, uh, and we just recorded it live. A uh, very simple, 
you know, Carter family simplicity is as like a a kind of place where there's really uh, sort of no more to be said. And so you sing a song like that. That's it's sort of a gospel tune in its own way. You know, in the year that I was born, our country was at war. You know, you know, uh, every man, woman, every every child, man, woman, and child, you know, agreed to take a stand, and you know, the the what I call the war machine was invented because you know, worldwide at any time, especially now, the arms trade is booming, you know? And so that song is really, a, of course, I guess anyone who listens to it would pick it up. Yeah. But, you know, the fact that I quoted the Bible in a way that no one ever has is interesting because it, uh, Jesus does say, I came to, not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And so the, the conservative elements and reactionary elements of, uh, sort of society looks upon that as as a kind of you know militant right you know and it becomes the militant right and it becomes a, an issue of gun control so the red the white and the blue is like saying you know even the best of intentions to stop the spread of fascism in the world and <laughs> go to war and all this for the for the highest reasons have have created you know, as actually General Eisenhower, President Eisenhower said back in the 50s, before a lot of folks were born, you know, it's the military-industrial complex that has been created that will be a danger in the future. And it is, of course, because all this uh, polit political and congressional interests are tied in with war and aggression, you know, and... It, it's it's a complicated thing, you know, uh, but on a practical level, you know, it's like gears. They're all inter, interwoven. So I thought the red, the white, and the blue for a bluegrass audience, if there is such a thing anymore, was a way of kind of just saying very simply and very plainly in the Carter family style, you know, so that the meaning is in there. It's in there. It's, it's obvious to yeah. me, you know, yeah. but somebody might hear it and... It, shed a tear of, of, of where we've gotten to because that's really where, where that song is at. The Light at the End of the World is a song. Tony Trishka, this banjo player friend of mine, keeps asking me. He was on tour with me in Japan in 1971. And I had written this song after I'd visited Hiroshima. And uh, through the years, Tony's going, did you ever record that song? Are you ever going to record that song? And I... <laughs> And uh, and it, it really, he kept it alive in my mind. And I found the original paper. It was written on a Japanese notebook paper, written in, uh, it was just spontaneously written. And I always looked at it and go, now this needs words. It needs more words. But actually, that's just the words that were written at the time. Yeah, apocalyptic, yes, because that's what it is, you know, when you face that kind of destruction. So, yeah, I was actually very happy or or artistically satisfied to get some something current something about our world in this music and that's why during the that's to answer your question your first question that's what the whole writing process or gathering process during the covid was got to say something about our world and bluegrass is not 
bluegrass usually talks about a very small world, but I think bluegrass has the power to reach out to the world itself from my mountain to your mountain. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, Peter, it was a pleasure talking with you today. Thank, Thank you. you so much for taking the time. My and, pleasure, um, man. It's always worth it. Yeah. yeah. Great to chat with you. Thank you. Good to see you. This episode of the Jam Bass Podcast. Thanks to Nate Todd for taking the time to share his High Sierra experience with us. And thanks to Peter Rowan for taking the time to chat with Nate at High Sierra. Also, thanks to everyone involved with the High Sierra Music Festival for hosting Team Jam Bass. This episode was produced by Jake Alexander. Thanks, Jake. Be sure to pick up Peter Rowan's Calling You for My Mountain wherever you get good music. Check back next week for another fantastic interview. Be well, everybody, and go out there and go see live music.